Quality Arizona, you're listening to Ask Smart People Smart Questions, our podcast and event series where we try to have the big picture conversation about some of the big issues that affect the LGBTQ community. For the month of March, our topic was incarceration, specifically LGBTQ experiences with prisons and jails. A big part of that story is how LGBTQ plus people and our identities can be criminalized when it comes to things like drug use, homelessness, sex work, and more. We also look at the dangers of isolation and some of the abuses that happen as a matter of policy in both our jails and prisons. And I was thrilled with the panel we were able to put together for this episode. Joining us as special guests are Joseph Joffrey from Lookout, Hira Flores from Transqueer Pueblo, and Paris Wallace from the Working Families Party. They all introduce themselves later in the episode so that you can learn their voices, and I'd encourage you to look into their work. I'll have links in the show notes. If you're interested in attending one of our future Ask Smart People Smart Questions events, they're held in partnership with the Tempe Public Library and we have topics booked all the way through August right now. There's some that I'm really excited for, and actually that's all of them. So let me give you a little preview. Next month in April, we're going to be talking about school governance. And I know that sounds a little bit dry, but it's gonna be great. We're going to look at the long chain of policymaking all the way down from the state level to local school administration and look at how far-right extremism has spread in that environment. In May, we're going to be having a conversation about substance use that I think listening to this episode will be a great lead-in for. In June, we'll be talking about homelessness and the housing crisis and looking at the big systems map of everyone involved in this complicated mess of a crisis we're in. In July, we're going to be having a conversation about transgender healthcare that I think almost no one is really having in this kind of format or this kind of setting. And then in August, we'll be talking about migration and sanctuary. And there's a lot there that I think, again, is really being missed in the way we talk about a lot of these issues. So that's a preview all the way through August. And for now, let's get into the panel. To learn more and to sign up for any of those events, visit equalityarizona.org slash events. Thanks to everyone for being here. Um, This is our third Ask Smart People Smart Questions event. We've been doing these for a few months now, started this this year in partnership with the Tempe Public Library. And the point of these is to get into the, you know, the bigger conversation around some of the big ideas that are important to the LGBTQ plus community. And so we started out with a panel about drag culture. We did one about religion. And now today's topic is about LGBT experiences with our criminal justice system, really focused on incarceration And there's four big questions I want to ask our panelists about. One of them is just, you know, our communities are overrepresented in our prisons and jails. What is the pathway that leads us there? 
The other question is going to be about our, our jails, and then the next question is going to be about our prisons. And then um, I'll kind of loop back a little bit at the end with a, with a fourth topic. So that's a lot of preamble. Uh, so I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves, and that way we can get into the real conversation. But thanks, everyone, for being here. And let's just um, start with Joseph. Hi. Uh, my name is Joseph Darius Jafari. Uh, I am the executive editor and founder of a nonprofit news organization called Lookout. We just started in January. We are the only nonprofit queer news organization in Phoenix serving the greater Phoenix community. And actually, it's perfect timing because tomorrow we're actually launching a partnership with the Prison Journalism Program to uh, elevate the voices and essays as well as reporting inside of prisons from the perspective of queer uh, prisoners inside. Uh, so that should be exciting. So you can, well, we can probably share out a link or something, but that's going to be released tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Uh, and we'll be doing that uh, every single month. Um, but yeah, glad to be here. Hi, everyone. My name is Gira Flores. I am the co-coordinator of the Arizona Queer Politics Project at Transcore Pueblo. We're an LGBT migrant organization of color, and we work in seven different areas from health justice, liberation, community defense. We do family work, uh, outreach, media, and uh, what is it? Media and art, and uh, I, for, I forgot what number I'm on, um, but yeah, Arizona <laughs> Queer Politics. Uh, hey everyone, my name is Paris Wallace. I use she and her pronouns, and I am the state organizing director for the Working Families Party. I also am the uh, chair for Southwest Recovery Alliance. Um, we work peer to peer with IV drug users and sex workers, um, and I represent a lot of different organizations. So I'll figure out what capacity I'm <laughs> here when we start talking. Awesome, thank you. So I really do want to start with that, and I, I'm thrilled that all of you can be here tonight because you have such a, a wealth of knowledge and you represent so many different perspectives all at once. And so I really want to start with this question of there's a, there's a number that we can look at, which is the fact that LGBT people are overrepresented in, in our criminal justice system. But I think the real question is what's happening to get us there? You know, what are the ways that queer people in particular are criminalized or failed by the system in that process? So uh, this, is a, this is a kind of an open-ended question because I think there's a lot of different ways that this happens, right? I think that there's things that have to do with lack of access to housing and employment. Sex work is criminalized, and that's something that's a big part of the LGBT experience. And so I don't want to precondition this question too much. But I think I'd like to hear from each of you what you think some of the causes are behind the problems that, you know, our community really faces here. Oh, everybody looked over right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. So I know. I was like, I guess I have something to say about it. Um, so you want to know the, like, underlying root like issue that you know i think the root issue we can talk about and and also you know what is it for queer people what's the root for queer people oh i can answer this out of like my own lived experience as a sex worker as a drug user as like a person that did not wake up one morning and say i want to sell my body and drugs today it was more along the lines of i have children i have a family I am a single person, I need to pay bills, feed people, and these are things that are readily at my, like, 
access, you know, like I know that time is money and I know all of those things, right? And so for me, I think a piece of, of why queer folk are like overrepresented, I guess you said, is because of like socioeconomic status and like honestly, it's just easy cash and I'm in charge of all of my like I have all of my full autonomy whenever I'm doing my work. So it's just like it's there. It's easy. I think one thing that we don't really focus on so much is really how the laws are made, right? So just speaking nationally, right? I mean, you look at the military. There is still a there's still a active law through the military court martial process where if you have HIV and you have sex with somebody, you will you will go to prison, right? It doesn't matter if you have if you transmit or not. You have laws that have been tried to be passed in places like Pennsylvania and here where spitting on police officers increases a penalty if you have some kind of transmissible disease and they aim at HIV, but it also includes a number of other things. But they really target HIV and the queer community because they know that it's it's, it's low-hanging fruit for them. There's also this idea that, you know, when we look at where people can come in contact with the criminal justice system within the queer community, it is predominantly for sex work, it is predominantly for drugs, and that's also two things that we, you know, in the community kind of have to constantly deal with and kind of talk about because whereas we have been trying to push, you know, bodily autonomy and safety, laws and police have not caught up. So when you're asking about kind of where does queer intersectionality like begin where the criminal justice or end where the criminal justice system begins, it really is in the laws, it's in the police, it's in housing, it's in almost every single aspect. The problem that we have to figure out is, you know, at least my perspective as a reporter is to figure out exactly, you know, what can be alleviated, right? What laws can be changed? What, you know, uh, what organizations are kind of spreading the word? Because a lot of this is just really bad law. In order for people to stop going into jail and prison, you need to change the laws that get them into jail and prison. And that requires not only just statewide support, and which is tough in a place like Arizona, where you know, the people who maybe are for criminal justice reform are concentrated to very small pockets of the state. But also, even within these pockets of the state, you have people who are really kind of against the idea of criminal justice reform. Keisha Hobbs, uh, Keisha is a great example, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is, like, you know, just a person who will likely not be the, not be the vanguard for, you know, changing mm-hmm. policing and cracking down on people who are experiencing a number of different, like, issues that also happen to be queer? Um, shit. There's, it's just like such a uh, tangled web that they've weaved, right? Um, I think that for our, for trans migrant people, for trans LGBT people, a lot of the reason why we migrate is typically because we hear that in the United States there is, Uh, more access, more resources, more acceptance of LGBT identities. And I think that one of the things that we've been seeing, especially within the last few years, as trans visibility is uh, more widely recognized and understood, one of the ways that we talk about criminalization is that uh, criminalizing of our, uh, it's 
making our identities and behaviors into crimes, right? And I think that is specifically when we're thinking about sex work and how police criminalize sex work is in the city of Phoenix, right? Uh, when we've spoken with police, they've told us that when they're enforcing the law around manifesting prostitution charges, they're going to certain parts of the city, certain times looking for certain people, and that just sounds like racial profiling. That literally is like the definition for racial profiling, but because they are viewing it through a, a uh, like this is legal or like this is illegal, it becomes okay <coughs> to then be able to criminalize people for their identities and their behaviors. And it's a very similar conversation that we have around uh, people who are undocumented, just like sitting in a room, right? Like all of us, or I don't know if all of us, but like most of us here, right? Uh, if uh, we're here with status, uh, we're allowed to be here. It's legal for us to be here. But if any one of us is um, undocumented, that person being in this room is illegal, right? And so it's criminalizing just the being, the person. And the more, like especially more throughout this like legislative session, it becomes very apparent how much of identity um, needs to be criminalized or is like the focus of criminalization, right? When they're talking about criminalizing drag, why is it okay that we see, you know, Miss Doubtfire and like all these like male performers, <laughs> artists doing cross-dressing and then that's okay, right? It's okay because they're heterosexual, because they're cisgender, because they're white, because they're male. And once you become trans or once you become queer, you aren't just, you know, you're not just cross-dressing for fun or as an art. You're doing drag, and that's bad. That's sexual. That's um, criminalized. And so that's, uh, that I think is the thing that I see more, not more than anything, but it's like um, part of criminalization isn't even just like resources or the law, it is the fact that they are criminalizing our identities. It's that our identities are viewed as a bad thing. Just really quick, I'm sorry, yeah. you brought something up that I just was, I've been stewing on, and so the work that we do, um, a lot of community-based work, and what we've seen as, uh, for example, uh, last cycle, um, syringe access programs were legalized, right? We did a lot of work around that. And what we've seen is that the police haven't, and the state actually hasn't caught up to that new legislation that's been passed. Mm -hmm. And so when we're, and I run um, two needle exchanges in Phoenix, and one is at, or I'm sorry, they're needle exchanges, but to make white people and most like Republicans comfortable, we call them syringe access programs. <laughs> um, and so, you know, at those locations, um, we, you, we get harassed, obviously, because of like all of us being there, just existing is a crime. But the state and the city level police haven't caught up to the fact that what we're doing is okay now. Because before we were all risking felony charges to do it. So when they show up and they're like, why do you have Narcan? Why do you have 800 condoms? Or why do you have, you know, like there's all of these questions that are being posed. And it's like, you guys haven't actually gotten that memo that we can do this now. So there's a lot of like gap from, you know, it's been passed to it's been enforced. There's, there's like a huge lag there. 
And so we're getting caught up on things that we're allowed to do and then it's wasting more time and then it's like resources are being drained and it's there's there's just like a yeah there's there's a gap in the space where like laws are passed policy is enforced and like the people that are enforcing said policy have no idea what's happening it's also not just like have no idea we've seen in multiple instances where i mean it's very well known for example that um for example, in Prescott, right, we know that people are, God, what was the point I was going to try to make? Uh, so in Prescott, I was, I was, I was working on a, a project about uh, policing in queer areas, and specifically, like, when people would, like, meet and gather because it's not a specific gay bar, and you'd see police that would actually pull people over knowing full well that they can't pull somebody over, but, like, they were coming out of a gay bar or they're coming out of something like that, and we actually saw this in Phoenix for a bit, too. But it's not even, we're also talking about like intersection of like how people come into the system. It doesn't even matter if there is a law on the books that forbids what happens, right? As long as the police take you and put you into, you know, custody of any kind, that's your, st- that's your start of the cycle into the prison, the, you know, to prison and jail, right? The moment that you are booked, the moment that you are fingerprinted, the moment that you have to go in front of arraignment, I mean, that causes a lot of harm for people, not just not just for queer, but for everybody who's involved, right? So it doesn't even need to be a law that is even enacted. It's just something that they can do if you have, you know, a, a police officer who just wants to be a dick for the night. And so that's like another aspect of like it's not just you know laws being passed and then not filtering down. It's laws being passed, filtering down, and then blithely ignoring them because of you know, some preconceived notion of who people are, where they come from, and kind of where they come out of. Yeah, yeah. We see the, like, being pulled over, for example, like, after we'll, uh, you know, we're in the lot for two, three hours or whatever, and then I load everything up into my car, and if you go to my car right now, it looks like some sort of dispensary. There's needles, there's pipes, there's this, there's that. But if I were to get pulled over, I will go to whole jail i will be in the jail however they've already they've wasted so much time resources to get me there and it's like oh shit actually you you can have the majority of all of these things some of the stuff whatever but like i have no reason to be like detained in any shape way or form and so you know i got pulled over perfect example coming back from tucson get pulled over i you know I have a couple of, like, things that I, like, don't open drawers. I don't do this because I know my rights, la, la, la. But I had a Narcan out, and the the cop was like, so why do you have the Narcan? Like, why wouldn't I have Narcan to, you know? He's like... You used it on yourself before? And I'm like, you can't Narcan yourself. So me, being the <laughs> asshole that I am, I'm like, you can't Narcan yourself. And then he's like, so why do you have it? I'm like, well, because I want to make sure that if I encounter someone that may might be overdosing, blah, 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 I went through my whole thing. He was like, when was the last time you used? And I was like, still can't Narcan myself, still not relevant. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. You pulled me over because you said I was going too fast. You happened to see this Narcan, and now you have all of these other pre-contextual questions that you want to ask me about, quite literally, the harm reduction work that I do. And now I'm going to go to jail because you see me, and you see this, and you draw all of these conclusions. 
And, and you, you know, think of the ancillary yeah. effects of this. So at Lookout, like one of the big projects that we're trying to do is we want to make sure that Narcan is in every single gay bar and every single queer space in Phoenix because we've surveyed a number of the bars and a number of the places and only two places actually carry it. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to rely on other people to kind of walk in and kind of walk around with Narcan on them in case somebody overdoses. When you ask them, why don't you carry Narcan here or why don't you have fentanyl test strips here? Their answer is, we don't want a liability with the police, yeah. yep. right? And so the big question is like, you know, we, we know that the queer community is over is, is overrepresented in overdoses, mm -hmm. uh, that they are the ones who are, you know, most likely to most likely to die from it because of lack of access to Narcan. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are, you know, having a conversation of how do we get this into spaces that could save people? And it's a fear of the police because the moment mm -hmm. that you might carry that, you might get pulled over, you might get thrown in jail. It's just it's it's the ancillary effects of not just you break a law, and thus you are now in the incar incarceral system. It is now a situation of you are afraid to even exercise your rights as a person mm -hmm. because of the fear of incarceration. 100% agree with you. Like, uh, I think one of the things that, like, for a lot of our community, they don't um, know is that the police, one, are allowed to lie to you, right? It's legally, uh, it's legally allowed for the police to lie to you. Two, uh, the police don't have to know the laws that they're enforcing. They don't have to know anything about the laws that they're enforcing. They just have to believe that you are breaking a law. And so when we talk to our community about, like, why is it important that you understand your rights, you know, I get a lot of pushback sometimes from people. It's like, well, the police are just here to help us. If we just let them do what they need to do, they're going to go off and do whatever. And it's like, if you get a police officer who maybe is uh, looking for something, right, or because you might have something that you believe is innocuous um, out in plain view. Um, so, uh, another, another idea that uh, crossed through my head was, like, actually, like, there's, I don't know, like, uh, where I got it from, but there's a statistic that most people end up breaking at least three federal laws every day. And so, like, even without us, like, knowing what those laws are, we're always breaking some, some type of law. Actually, we're all criminals at some point throughout the day. It's literally just about whether or not you know um, that information, whether or not you know your rights, and whether or not you get, uh, you get, uh, oh, God, what is that word? Not investigated. Pulled over, harassed. Questioned, questioned is the word, uh, by the cops. And so for us, it's really important to be able to talk about uh, knowing your rights and being able to internalize those because, yeah, like sometimes you just like say whatever thing comes to the front of your mind about uh, like, oh, why do, you, why do you have that pipe? Why do you have um, these condoms? Can and to party. Right. <laughs> A really classic thing in New York is the walking well trans law. Yes. Which basically just is a, a sex work kind of criminalization thing mm -hmm. where, where you're looking at whether someone has condoms on them. Mm -hmm. and That's manifestation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This now, the NYPD changed that a while ago. But again, yes, yeah. this goes to... You know, we saw in the city, actually, which is another nonprofit news organization in New York. And if you don't subscribe, you should because they're fantastic if you care about New York politics. Um, but even though the NYPD made a change to that policy, 
police officers still can arrest if you have multiple condoms. It'll be dismissed by the prosecutor, but you still have to go through that entire process. Within the city of Phoenix, and actually within like most other cities around Phoenix, we have very similar laws. Um, when I was like doing the initial research around manifestation law, where it's like, yeah. uh, what is uh, what is considered prostitution or soliciting prostitution, and it's like all kinds uh, of stuff. Literally, like walking down the street. Any, what I just any, did, like uh-huh. literally, uh-huh. little shimmy, <laughs> little shimmy. Literally, it's any bodily gesture done in public spaces. Uh-huh. Um, it is asking a police officer if they're a police officer, um, and so like all of these things. And then there's other things that like are very similar to that, which are not a part of the law, but are just like ways that they can establish probable cause, yeah. um, which are just like racially rooted, uh, rooted in homophobia and transphobia mm-hmm. um, in order to basically entrap our community. Um, I know that for like, uh, like some of our community, it's um, our community members, they think that like, oh, if you get a dick pic, uh, that means that they're not a police officer because police officers can't nope. send you dick pics. It's not true. It's not true. I can. That's not that's true. Not true. Police officers can send you dick pics. I say I that mean, again. They can send you pics. They don't have to be up there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it could be anybody's. I mean, dick. it could be anybody's dick, but why not use the opportunity? One of the things I'm hearing from all of you is is basically that what it comes down to even beyond the law, is just enforcement. And a lot of what's happening from an enforcement standpoint is the police really focusing in on these things like needles and condoms where they're sort of looking at it in this weird health way where we're a contamination or like a disease vector, right? And that's something that I think is maybe not the whole story. I don't think it's even close to the whole story, but it's important. Like, And when I think about what I know about historical policing of queer communities, that's a big part of it too. And I think it's really relevant to how we are treated in jails and prisons also. So the segue into talking about how people are treated in jails is that I know that in Maricopa County, there's an actual policy on the books that recommends uh, solitary isolation for trans and non-binary people. This is something that I think feels very clearly along those lines of we're going to quarantine this person away from everyone else, like we're some kind of disease. And I don't know that that was the intent of the people who wrote that, but that's how it feels in effect. So um, I want to talk a little bit about what are those experiences? How does that work for queer people in a way that's different than for other people? So I've been covering prisons and jails and police for over a decade now and I always come back to the experience of queer people inside because it is really interesting you mentioned for example that Maricopa County and not just Maricopa County in the state we actually do quarantine quarantine uh that's been in my head um we put people in we put uh trans people specifically into solitary confinement when they're first incarcerated in jails now they will tell you it's and there is to be clear, there is like some legitimacy to the fact that when you are thrown into, when you are thrown into a max facility, uh, and because unlike what, there's so much misinformation going around that if you are a trans woman, that somehow you are going to be placed into a woman's facility. That's just not true. 
like in Arizona, if you are a trans woman, they will go by they will go by what is on your birth certificate and it will place you in a men's prison, right? And that ultimately, I was just I was just speaking to somebody today. Her name is Asia, and she's work she's working with us on getting some information inside. She was raped, you know, while being held in a men in a men's prison, not just by her celly, but by also the staff, right? That's prison to the spit later on. But, I mean, it goes back to the entire purpose of why do they segregate? Why do they, why do they you know, put people into solitary? There is a legitimate reason as far as, like, you know, for safety. But the question then becomes, what can we do to actually kind of fix this, right? If you look at New York, you know, New York's um, – not Rikers, but, um, you know, there's uh, – the Kings County uh, Jail, what they were doing is that they were actually having just a specific ward for people who identify as trans, and it was it – was, it was it was mixed and everything like that, and it actually worked. That changed when Mayor Adams came in. So all of a sudden, that was disbanded, and then now we're experiencing now we're seeing some more violence against those people inside of county jails. But you know, can that be something that happens here? It's a matter it's a matter of political will, right? Of whether or not we actually care to retrofit our jails to be accommodating, because we know that jails are you know they they turn and burn people like crazy. They're not like prisons. So whereas a prison, you'll get like, you know, a thousand people in a single like um, in a single block jails, you'll get a thousand people within a month. Right. And the entire purpose is just to turn and burn while people are either going to trial or they're just wanting to come in and get out, get processed. Right. And so the political will then becomes, are we going to fix our jails to be safer for these people? Because it is dangerous. Jails are dangerous places. I mean, they are not hospitable for medical. They are terrible when it comes to food. They are violence ridden because it ends up being a shelter for people who are mentally who are who are experiencing mental episodes and they're not getting medication. So they're they're kind of they're they double up in cells. I mean, all these different things, you know, show the fact that, you know, it's not it's not really safe for anybody to be in jail for a long period of time. It's especially bad for queer people because the moment that it gets wind that you are gay, for example, then you, you know, you get a corrections officer who, you know, we've seen this time and time again. And I've interviewed people who have, who have been through this where they identified as gay and they were put into a cell with somebody who actively said they hated gay people. Right. Like, what's the purpose of this? Cruelty is the point, I guess. Um, So, yeah. So the experience of people inside of jails is is can only be fixed by a political will to do so. Um, So I just want to say that Transcorp Pueblo is an abolitionist organization. We don't believe in jails, prisons, cops, borders. Uh, we believe that the safest communities are not communities with more police. They're uh, communities with better and more resources. And jails are exactly like the sinkhole of resources. You're essentially just paying uh, people to babysit uh, very poorly, very poorly babysit adults um, and brutalize them. And actually something that came to mind was uh, about... Uh, the work that Carla did. Uh, Carla is our coordinate, uh, our liberation coordinator at Transcorp Pueblo. She received back in 2020, 2020? I believe that's a year, I don't know. Um, a letter from 19 uh, uh, women who were uh, detained within Cibola. They were detained um, in a detention center. They were migrant trans women. Uh, and they were being held in a pod for trans, uh, for trans individuals. Um, and very, mu- very similarly to how 
in jails we have like you know we're isolating people from um, the rest of the the population right the trans women from the male, male population um, but this was where they were putting all the trans women and something that we were actually seeing is how the abuse that they were facing actually heightened because now you have all the trans women in one place and so now it became much more easily to sexually and physically abuse them and so that was something that we would uh, that we saw and actually thankfully Cibola is now closed because of the work that uh, uh, Carla did, these trans women did, and that a bunch of other organizations that were supporting um, these women. And so Cibola is no longer there. There's no longer a trans detention pod. And many of these trans women are now free. But yeah, what we often see, right, is that uh, jails and prisons are actually just like a way to dump our money into uh, just ab abusive uh, hostage situations, essentially. Right? We're not providing people with the resources that they need to be able to heal from the experiences and the trauma that they have. And instead, we are just holding on to them. Um, yeah, I, I, um, that's where my, my thought was going when like, I was hearing about like, separating out trans women from male population, because I think that it creates this idea Right, that like actually jail would be a much safer place for trans people if we were isolated. And actually like mm. jail is isolating in itself. And what our communities really need is, well, the resources to be able to sustain ourselves and to be able to create for one another. And that becomes a whole lot more difficult when literally legislature, legislators at every point in turn just decide like, actually we're getting you in this, that, that, that way. And creating a whole ecosystem where it just like invisibilizes our community i will say as a queer black woman that has been incarcerated um that passes um there is a lot of privilege that i exude right so my experience being incarcerated is definitely not the same as anybody that you know is easily identifiable Right, um, you know, I think it, I think when you look at, like looking at the privileges that different people hold, um, their experiences are different. You know, I, I breezed in and I breezed out. I will also say, to second your point, any organization that I am here representing, we are all abolitionist organizations. Um, so I'm just gonna put that out there. Um, and, and, you know, I sometimes willingly go into jails, sometimes unwillingly go into jails. Um, but it's always to, uh, I guess, to check to see what's happening on the inside, right? Um, and so I, I, will, I will say that my experience has been very different. And it, and it has been, you know, a lot of catcalls and it's been all of that, but it's never been violent in that manner. You know, like, yeah, because I just, like, I don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe I clock as, as queer, but like, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. It's the nose ring, is it the nose ring? <laughs> they have to get you to take it out, right, when you're inside? Oh yeah, okay, so, well, my septum? Yeah, yeah all, everything comes out, everything. Uh. I haven't been, I haven't been in since I got my smiley, mm -hmm. but yeah, everything has to come out, so. Mm -hmm. I always make sure to wear these kind of shoes, though, because then I can wear my shoes. 
and they don't take my shoestrings. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have like a oh. very specific I'm going to jail outfit that I wear. <laughs> and it's like a lot of like stringless, <laughs> like tieless. It's very specific. Long sleeves, no bra. I will say it's um, one of the problems that we have, at least in Arizona. So I, I came from Pennsylvania two years ago, right, where we actually have, you know, written into the state constitution a, a prison society that goes in and at any point somebody could just say, I want to go and, and like see what's happening inside, right? It's written to the state constitution. It was started by the Quakers. And that was incredibly powerful for prisoners on the inside because whenever there was a problem, they could reach out and they mm-hmm. could say, uh, I am a, I remember like there was a lesbian who I spoke to who uh, was, being, uh, was being abused by one of her cellies and she reached out to us. She couldn't get a hold of the prisoner society. We reached out to them. They went in and they were able to at least acknowledge and see what was going on inside because visibility, the problem, the problem with jails, and especially when it comes, it's, it's so interesting how we talk about queerness. We talk about jails because at the same time that the state is trying to push us aside and make us invisible, jails are a naturally invisible place, right? They are in our backyards and they are somehow completely, like people are just oblivious to their existence, right? And so what happens on the inside is almost like it's, 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 just, it's just a black hole, a sinkhole, like what you said. And so what we need, you know, to kind of see and analyze when we're talking about queer experiences inside, we need to be able to kind of go in and talk to people. As reporters, it's impossible. We cannot go in. I have to rely on jail messaging services in order to get, you know, word about what's going on inside. Uh, it's then redacted, it's then screened, it's then, you know, something that we can't see. And so when, you know, we're trying to talk about, you know, what exactly can we fix inside uh, besides abolition, but, like, as far as, like, you know, just in the short term of, like, what to actually fix inside for queer people, it's almost impossible to know unless we have some kind of screening tool Mm -hmm. to know what happens inside. We just don't have that because we don't... Or you can rack up a bunch of misdemeanors like I do. (sighs) Correct. To tell you what's going on inside. Exactly, exactly. But then, you know, then we go... (laughs) Then we come full circle into, like, you know, we also still live in... We still live in a state where, you know, if I rack rack up enough misdemeanors, you know, I can get fired from my job and I can't even get rehired at a newspaper. Um, Substack is paying all the bills yet. No, it's not paying all the bills yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's uh, it's 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 multifaceted, mm-hmm. basically, to say the least. <laughs> I mean, I'm on pause right now. So yeah, you're right. If we rack up enough, so we do need, and I did not know that that was a thing, the and we should talk Prison about Society. that afterwards, because yeah. I think that's like really important, because there are a group of us that rack up misdemeanors to go and to make sure that, you know, like ICE, and like just to check the conditions out right and there's a lot of like regular folks that don't know that there are a group of us that like you know like i think i have and they're all silly misdemeanors right it's like loitering trespassing you know they're all very low level misdemeanors right um and i do have an employer that understands and is like i got your bail money like you know, so I am lucky in that way, but you're correct. Like, there are folks that if they decided to participate in those kind of activities, they would never have a job, which is another level of, like, entitlement or something that, like, I, like, acknowledge, especially being in movement work, that we kind of have the luxury of just 
going inside all of the time and and taking those notes and coming back and saying this this and this and being able to say we're going to organize our community to go to this place and you know like we know what's happening type conversations so I think that everybody should just get five more misdemeanors. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, what you said about jail as something that is inherently isolating is really important because we're talking about different balances of violence that happen and isolation itself is is a violent thing to experience and there isn't really a way around it and I, I think that's such a great way to encapsulate what's happening. Now, Paris, when you were talking about going to jail outfit, in my mind, I was just like, that is going to a behavioral health ward outfit also, which is like my own personal experience of like, I know how to prepare for that. Mm-hmm. And it's something where, you know, the contrast is is pretty severe now. And historically, maybe not so much. I mean, if, if you were being institutionalized for mental health issues not that long ago, it was a very carceral thing. And now... Uh, I can be given a private room but have access to community spaces. Uh, There's a lot of options for me that no one is afforded in a jail, right? And I I think that's important when we're thinking about isolation. Uh, So prisons are the next step, I guess, um, if we're talking about some of the ways people get treated inside. Joseph, you kind of alluded to a, a few of the things already but you actually published a really big story in Lookout uh, not too long ago about some of the ways that incarcerated people who are LGBT are given disciplinary mm-hmm. tickets in a very discriminatory way. So can you catch us up on what that's about? Yeah, sure. So we were able to um, scrape the um, the DOC's website to kind of see exactly what every single person was gotten a disciplinary for right and the disciplinaries inside you can I mean if you can imagine what life like is inside prison essentially it's 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 the most like severe form of like boot camp essentially where every single thing you do is uh, basically you're told to do and when you kind of go outside those boundaries then you get a ticket for it and you rack up enough tickets then you get you can get moved to a different yard that has more punishment you can get your uh your job taken away which you need a job because prison is actually quite expensive when you're inside and so what we found through looking at all these disciplinaries is that there were different categories of um for example uh, people getting ticketed for uh, threatening homosex uh which is as simple as somebody like you know just it, it, I don't have a great example, but it, there's, that's 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 one that we found. We also found hand holding, uh, as well as people who are just um, you know kind of like in the same bed together, but so just maybe even hanging out. I mean, ultimately, all these come from you know the idea that we want to eradicate sexuality inside because unlike in other countries where they kind of they kind of like look at us and go, what do you mean? people can't masturbate or have sex inside uh we just don't allow it right and people are serving life sentences and like getting ticketed for like all these kind of small things but for queer people specifically you know we saw that gay men uh were the ones who were targeted for threatening homosex lesbian women were being tar- were vastly overrepresented in you know hand holding and you know it's it's just more examples of you know how difficult it is to be 
queer inside. You know, I spoke with, um, we're publishing in our story tomorrow, we're publishing about, you know, uh, this man named Markle Sumner, Sumler. He, um, he is a part of a rehabilitation program inside of prison, the Tucson facility. And, you know, the entire purpose is to make sure that you're okay with yourself and that, you know, it's a, it's a pretty decent program. It's called the track program. But, one of the things is making sure you're okay with, you know, your relationships. And when he mentioned that he was gay, then they basically said, you have, you, we're not going to address this, right? There's no meaningful way to address sexuality or even rehabilitation, like what for queer people, like to kind of come to terms with whatever kind of trauma they've experienced in the past that kind of got them there. Um, it's just not available. So, I mean, long story short, um, there's a lot of problems when it comes to, again, what, what to fix and kind of what to address when it comes to people inside prisons because there's just no visibility inside. Um, but, yeah, so that's, that's one bit. There's probably much more we can talk about, but, yeah. <laughs> to your point of, like, different examples, I, I've spoken with people who have had this experience with something as simple as a, a short haircut right. if, if you're in a women's prison, for example. Right, wearing makeup, stuff like that. Yeah, and... That's that's such a. I mean, I, I lose my mind every time I have to think about this, and so it's difficult to even get into a real topic. But I know that there's more that's going on, and so I think the the real question is, you know, for queer people who are incarcerated, for people who are serving prison sentences, uh, there's these ways that that they get disadvantaged just based on their identity, and. I think the idea was to open the floor to really talk about that specific thing from a policy standpoint, because I've, I've looked into this and Department of Corrections is, is a real black hole when it comes to rules making and policy. Right. And so when I first heard about that, I thought, okay, well, what's the, what's the fix, right? Where is this written down? And they don't, they don't have to share that. No, there's specifically a law written into the state constitution where um, every single department is open to public records. Department of Corrections and Department of Public Safety are the only two agencies in Arizona where the only excuse they have to give you is um, public safety. Like, a, a, I can't remember the exact, the exact terminology, but that's the only excuse they have to give you, and there's no appealing it. Um, we've actually, so I work full time for the Arizona Republic. I'm on the investigations team and I cover prisons and we took the Department of Corrections to court and we're just actually going to court on Friday again, uh, because they were trying to hide records for specifically on what happens to, uh, people who are assaulted by staff members. I'm looking specifically at, um, uh, male staff members who are assaulting other male staff mem- other other male uh, prisoners, uh, and you know they, by law, PREA, the federal law says that you have to disclose data, but state law says that we only have to disclose a certain like limited amount of data. Any more than that, and we can just say it's a public safety concern. We don't have to release any of it. Um, so. So to the point, it's like it's to understand kind of where policies are made and kind of how decisions are made. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to know. Now, I will say that Dr. Thornold, the guy who took over for um, uh, Charles Ryan, not Charles Ryan, Shin. Yeah, uh, Shin. Um, 
you know, it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with the Department of Corrections now, even when it comes to the overrepresentation of queer people inside, right? And we actually don't know a, a true number of who is inside because they don't track that. A lot of it is self-identification. A lot of it is through letter writing, some of it from the um, the Williams Institute at UCLA that kind of tracks it, as well as the Prison Policy Institute. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what he does because, I mean, the first thing he did was when he came in was try to humanize right the prison so like instead of calling people inmate you called them resident right or you referred to them as last name he has a policy of like hugs before you know like like uh but before like a uh, assault or anything like that he took away the tasers and uh mace that they have on them you know so it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens from a top-down level because at the same time that we can kind of see you know, a bit more openness as far as like what the DOC does as far as policies around queer people inside and kind of treatment of them inside. It's top down doesn't always work, right? You have people who have been at the Department of Corrections for 20, 25 years who are enforcing stuff from the Charles Ryan days, which was egregiously, you know, like battering people and then hiding it, right? Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I'm going to hold my reservations to kind of see exactly, you know, what, like to see exactly if there's going to be any kind of improvement. I highly doubt it. Um, not from like a policy standpoint, but it kind of goes back to like police, right? Like things can change at the top, but if they don't change at the bottom as well in tandem, you know, we're going to say, we're going to have the same issues and kind of have the same conversations about mistreatment and isolation and abuse and, you know, drug use and all that kind of stuff inside of prisons, and we're going to continue having a body count inside of queer people. It's like trickle-down economics, but for prisons. <laughs> I have some, I have, a, I have an anecdote. Um, so, in Spanish, when we're talking about people being um, gay or lesbian, we refer to them as joto jota, right? Um, what I learned about when I first came to Transcorp Pueblo is where does that story come from? And it comes from uh, when you were talking about yards, it like sort of like brought this story back to the forefront. But it's because um, when uh, queer people in Mexico City were being arrested under, you know, whatever anti-LGBT law that was happening at the time, they were being put into the J block. They were being put into... Uh, uh, the Jota block. And so, like, anytime you, like, would get some sort of a, a queer person, you would send them there. And so that's where, like, Joto and Jota come from, is from, like, criminalization. Um, and so, like, it's it's really interesting that, like, even now we still, like, ha- like are wrapped up in this, like, story around criminalization and our identity as, like, queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, that, <laughs> I don't know, that, that just is something that um, that came up. And there was another there was another tangent, but I lost it right now. If you want to go, I can like literally come right back to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, if anyone has thoughts about engaging with a large institution like that. Maybe we have a way to speak to the new director, but then how do we do real advocacy work or engagement work to intervene in, in the way things are actually going to be implemented how can we make real change or is this something that 
we're just going to be on the outside of as you know people in the community or people doing movement work it's hard because you know i want to give the benefit of the doubt to arizonans um but I think the reality is it goes back to political will, not even just like from the from, you know, legislatures, legislators, but also from the people themselves. I was, you know, I, I'm constantly getting into battles with um, other people. And I don't I don't hide the fact that I am, you know, I have empathy, you know, and I think that's one of the things that gets me into trouble at my job all the time is that I have empathy for prisoners. And then I somehow am called an activist by all the different political figureheads out there, including editors. Um, but, you know, I worry that people don't understand that, kind of to your point earlier, that any one of us can kind of end up in prison, right? Um, I, you know, I speak with people all the time who are gay men inside who lived the exact same life I did. They did drugs. They did sex work when they were in their 20s. They did party and play. They did all the shit that, like, you know, we say, you know, that we use anecdotally of, like, how the how, how did you get into prison? And I think so many of us just got lucky in not getting caught, right? And it's only recently that we've started to see kind of the tide turn on policy changes inside because, being real, the opioid ep- epidemic uh, is what kind of changed that because white people started seeing their own kids going into prison. Um, and so I don't think Arizona's caught on yet. Um, we have a massive problem with, you know, you know, drugs like like every, everywhere else, but, you know, it's being pinned on brown communities, you know, and the people who are overdosing en masse are queer people. So we're not... Eh, the the direct effects of or the the old adage of like um people don't care unless it happens to them we're almost like 10 years too late so i i i I think that we have a ways to go for people to kind of wake up and kind of direct policy decisions on the ground um because i think there's just too few people who care well, we're running a little low on time. I did want to see if we had a little time to talk about uh, clemency hearings. So if you've ever been to like a BOEC, Board of Executive Clemency hearing, uh, one of the things that comes up is a lot of what's being brought up to petition for clemency is family support and community support. And for queer people, that family support is often just not available. And then that's going to make it much less likely that you'll you'll be uh, given, you know, clemency in, in this hearing. Clemency in Arizona is incredibly complicated, right? Because Arizona is one of the few states that don't have parole. We have natural life sentences and we have, um, sorry, natural life sentences, and then you have people who are eligible for release after 25 years. But keep in mind that, you know, there's a number of people when we're talking about family supports Clemency boards rely heavily on not only victim impact statements, but also families. And so if you think about the number of people that are being constantly criminalized or people who have stacked life sentences, what we call de facto life sentences. So it's illegal to, you know, it's illegal to uh, sentence somebody like under 20, under 18 years old 
to a natural life sentence. But what we have ruled in Arizona by the Arizona Supreme Court is that you can still give them life sentences if they if they rack up enough. So I'm speaking with one uh, young gay man who is 20 years old. He's been in Adobe Mountain School. Now he's imprisoned and he has a natural life sentence for arson. Right. He, you know, burned down some buildings when he was 16 and he got 10 15 life, he got 10, 15 year sentences, right? And so he can probably get released when he's 60, which is when most people die in prison. So the only way that he can get released is through the clemency board. But because he's gay, he doesn't have family to kind of write statements. Instead, all he has is against him is, we ha- is he has the victim statements, right? Um, so there's that. And there's also keep in mind, Arizona is incredibly punitive when it comes to, um, you know, clemency. Uh, when the Supreme Court said that you can't, you have to resentence every single juvenile that you've ever that you've ever sentenced to life in prison. Arizona said no, and out of the 110 people who were eligible, we released one. Um, so that's just to keep keep that in mind when we're talking about that. I will say that something that we've done is organize folks to speak at hearings. At like I've spoken at many hearings for folks. Um, you can, we've done, we've actually partnered with TQP on one, I think like Heather was speaking, I spoke. Um, so when those hearings happen and there's not family or anyone, like you all can still show up, right? Um, you know, usually what ends up happening is like you talk, the lawyer will say like, this is, a, this, is this person, this is their story, this is what they've done, like, while, you know, incarcerated, this is their plan for, like, there's usually, like, stages to the process, but I've spoken at many clearance hearings, I've written letters of support, um, it's, it, it really does, like, when, when you hear the call to action for Pack the Court, it's really important that that actually happens, because there's those folks that don't have people that show up, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, and I will never forget um, when uh, a dear friend of mine was being arraigned, you know, we did pack the court and we were able to mobilize so many people that they had to move courtrooms twice, mm. right? And so that's powerful as well when you have all of these people lined up down the hallway inside the room and they're like, we have overflow on overflow. Um, and, you know, everybody is testifying and speaking and, you know, it really makes a difference in that one person's 10 minutes in front of the judge. Did it work? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, well, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And (laughs) and that's the thing. Like in Arizona, it's yes. And right. Mm -hmm. Like, excuse me, it worked. Right. And, but he still had to, he still, he got a lesser sentence. They weren't just like, they resentenced him. Look at all of these people that you brought. Go home with them. No, it wasn't that. It was like, okay, you are deeply rooted in the community. You have connections. You have an aftercare plan. You have all of these things. So instead of giving you the 25 years, I'm actually only going to give you eight when time served. And then you get, you know, uh, time and a half, all of that bullshit. And he ended up, it, you know who I'm talking about. Um, he ended up, you know, getting out. And while he was incarcerated, he was able to, like, register everybody in county to vote because technically they can still vote while on the inside. Um, So it was like a twofer, right? (laughs) I don't know if that's, like, a good thing or a bad thing. It was a twofer. 
But yeah, like whenever you see those call to actions, it's really important that you show up. Even if you don't know the person, you can still say something. Well, where are those calls to action coming from? Where can people find those opportunities? Oh, I don't know. Um, Instagram, Facebook. Like there's community-based organizations that post. Like if it's really, um, MassLib does a really good job of saying like, we're going to this hearing at this time for this person, be there. It's also posted online. The, um, the the clemency hearings are also posted. On. Oh yeah, but I mean, yes. If you have nothing but time on your hands and you want to show up at just anybody's clip, do it. <laughs> love love it for you. Yes. But like, traditionally, what happens is there's like a coordinated effort. Well, and I imagine that that's a better way to show actual yeah. like community support. <laughs> just like one person, you're like, "Hi, Jane. I don't know you, but I want you to come home." <laughs> what? The baby misses you. I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thanks to everyone for being here. Thanks to all of you for being in this conversation. Thanks again to all of my guests for making this panel possible and to all of you for listening. Ask Smart People Smart Questions is an event series and podcast from Equality Arizona. I'm Gene Woodbury, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.